coaching can help you gain deeper understanding of challenges that may be holding you back. You may not realize that there are others who may be successful and operating successful businesses who share some of the same challenges that you are facing. Welcome to Coaching for Real with Ronald Graves. Our program will look into the individuals and their challenges and show how the coaching process may be what they need to find the root causes of these challenges within themselves and learn to work through these challenges in order to find success. Now, here's your host, Ronald Graves. Hello, welcome to Coaching for Real, brought to you by Poyama Leadership Institute, the show that brings you real people, real challenges, and real breakthrough. Again, I'm your host, Ronald Graves, and this show is about you. Coaching for Real is on the Voice America Business Channel to help you discover your masterpiece and live into your greatness. The title of today's show is Planning Your Amazing Retirement Starts Today. Now, if you already have a retirement strategy, then I would suggest that taking a critical look at that strategy starts today. You want to stay tuned because our guest has some exceptional insight that will enable you to view retirement from a higher level of awareness. Speaking of awareness, our quote for the week is, your current results do not define your potential. They are merely your current awareness of your potential. Let me put that a little different way. The current results of your retirement plan do not define your retirement potential. They are merely your current awareness of your retirement potential. Our special guest today is Benjamin Brandt. Benjamin is a certified financial planner and founder and president of Capital City Wealth Management, a Bismarck, North Dakota, fee-only based financial planning company. Benjamin's mission is a twofold, quote, we must educate and empower our clients to make sound retirement decisions. He is also the host of the popular podcast, Retirement Starts Today Radio and the accompanying blog. Benjamin is an Iraqi combat veteran having served in the North Dakota Army National Guard for eight years, including a 15-month deployment to Iraq in 2003. You may have seen Benjamin featured in the Huffington Post, CNBC.com, Forbes, Business Insider, ClarkHoward.com, and many others. In his free time, Benjamin and his wife, Kristen, can be found on the weekends at the hockey rink or on the gymnastic and wrestling mats chasing their three energetic children. So welcome, Benjamin. Hey, Ronald. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Good. How are you tonight? I'm fantastic. Couldn't have chosen a a better day to chat with you. I'm in a fantastic uh, circumstances. Great. Thank you so much for being on our show. You bet. Now, Benjamin, take us back to the beginning, and you can decide where that is. And take us along your journey up to the point in your life where you first had the idea to start Capital Wealth Management. Well, I knew I wanted to be a financial advisor from a very young age. Uh, I remember being just tall enough to see over the top of my grandpa's desk, and he would show me uh, the spreadsheets. You know, of course, this was before you know Excel. He would show me uh, graphing paper and spreadsheets of his CDs and his compound interest. You maybe remember back when CDs used to actually pay interest. Uh, and it just mm-hmm. started to foster this this interest in finance in me. Uh, and I took a personal finance class in in tenth grade, and I just knew that that was you know whether it would be investing or financial planning. I didn't have all those beats worked out yet, but I knew I wanted to do something in finance. Uh, I didn't have a lot of means uh, to go to college. We came from pretty hum- uh, pretty humble background, 
Uh, so I made money where I can. I delivered pizzas and I washed cars. Uh, and then I met my best friend in high school's neighbor, who was a National Guard recruiter, and he showed me a fantastic way to make college free. Uh, so I joined the North Dakota National Guard, and uh, it wasn't uh, a few semesters into college that I, that I discovered why, why college was free, uh, because after September 11th, of course, everybody in the National Guard was mobilized, and I did a few what I'd like to call semesters abroad in, uh, uh, overseas in the Middle East and had some interesting adventures there. Uh, got out of the military, got married. Uh, passed my general securities exam, dropped out of college to become a financial advisor. <laughs> Eventually, I went back <laughs> because you have to you have to have a four year degree to be a certified financial planner. Uh, and then on my thirty third birthday in two thousand and fourteen, I started Capital City Wealth Management after six or seven years for working for a, a Fortune five hundred uh, insurance focused company. And I started Capital City Wealth Management to focus exclusively on retirement income planning. So working with a very narrow subset of of investors. Okay, now we're, we're at the point where you want to start your own company, uh, Capital Wealth Management. So talk to us about some of the decisions you were faced with leaving the corporate world and how you went through that process. Well, looking at, looking at transitioning from a commission-based business to a fee-only business uh, was going to be very difficult. I knew my income would be reduced by about 50%. Uh, my wife stays at home and I've got three kids, uh, so I knew that would be very difficult I had a, an expensive lease for my office that I knew I needed to keep up, and I had two uh, employees that were legacy employees from the other company that I, I cared very much about bringing them along to the new company and not impacting their lifestyle in any way. Uh, so I measured twice and cut once uh, and made sure all the numbers worked frontwards and backwards, and I was pretty close. Uh, and, uh, you know, here we are almost three years later, and our heads are still above water, and, and we're profitable. So I uh, feel pretty good about that. Yeah, that's a good story. Uh, what was the one key thing, if there is one key thing, that just basically made you decide to go for it? I was sort of at an impasse with, with management that I wanted to go or I wanted to go one way and they wanted to go another way, and it was just sort of irreconcilable differences. And I thought, if I'm going to stay in this business, I need to do it my my own way. Maybe I'm a bit oppositional or defiant in that, in that way, but uh, I knew I needed to, to make a go of it my own. There's never been a, a business in my city that is structured this way that doesn't sell financial products. So I thought either I'm on the cutting edge or people much smarter than me tried it and it didn't work. But either way, I was going to give it a go because I thought it needed to be done. Great. So who were the important people who helped you as you, you know, kind of pursued this, this dream or this, this new en endeavor? Well, there was quite a few. Uh, I interned at this Fortune 500 uh, insurance-focused company back in 2006, fresh off of my military career. Uh, and I interned for a lady uh, at church who actually still works for, for us to this day. Uh, and she sort of took me under her wing and, and showed me that, uh, you know, if you do right by people, eventually uh, everything will work out for you financially. You know, if you can master a skill that other people are have anxiety around, financial planning or retirement ex planning being a great example, everything else uh, after that will sort of fall into place. And I've taken those lessons, and that's why we founded Capital City Wealth Management, and that's what we continue to do for people is to take the scary parts of life and the scary parts of retirement, explain them in a way that makes sense, and create a plan that people are willing to stick to. Good. Can you talk a little bit about, let's say, year one? Uh, you're, you know, you're three years into it now. What about that first year? Usually that's kind of a, uh, a very enlightening time. What were some of the major challenges you were faced with, and, and what did you do to overcome them? 
Well, the interesting challenges are when you run out of money, you know, the, the guy on top, his, his paycheck gets cut first. And I knew that going in, but I didn't really, you know, it was sort of a, oh, that'll never happen to me. But it happened quite a bit, uh, you know, where it, towards the end of the quarter when revenue runs out, uh, you know, your paycheck runs out. Everybody gets paid uh, before you do. And that's something I wasn't entirely prepared for, but we made it work. And the other thing is that when you worked for a big company, when something breaks, there was always someone else to fix it, right? I mean, you would call IT or you would call your compliance department or you would call whoever. There was always uh, uh, somewhere at the end of the rainbow that could fix your problems. But when you're the founder of your company, you are the end of the rainbow. So when the website broke, I had to jump on YouTube and figure out how to fix it, uh, which, of course, grinds everything else in your business to a halt. So building that infrastructure and building the foundation where, where we're at two or three years later, now you know those problems sort themselves out because we've developed systems and processes. But in that first year, we didn't have any of that. So it didn't take much for the business to grind to a halt until this one minor thing was fixed, and then we could start to try to build momentum again. So those are things that I didn't know, I didn't realize until I sort of jumped in with both feet. But uh, you know, one thing that they teach you in the military is to adapt and overcome. So I, I fortunately had those lessons, uh, and we just kept on rolling. That's great. So if you're looking back on that year now and you, you look at the first 12 months, how did the reality of, of where you, you got to in that, that period of time compare to your initial expectations? I thought that our business would grow quicker than it did. Um, like I said, the small things that grind your business to a halt, I was not prepared for. Uh, I knew revenue-wise we needed to grow our company to a certain number uh, within a certain amount of time to be viable. And we hit those numbers, but I thought to have a permanent business, I needed to be at a certain level of assets in a certain amount of time. Uh, we aren't there yet. We, we passed our minimum viable product uh, number, but we aren't to our permanent business number yet. And so I hope to be there, which is $100 million in assets, within the next few years. Okay. So now in retrospect, we talked about some of the, you know, the things that came at you you weren't quite expecting that first year. If you had to do it over again with a little bit more knowledge that you have now, how would, how would you do it differently? Well, funnily enough, uh, my last you know, while at this larger company, I was really on the fence of, you know, should I, shouldn't I? I talked myself out of it over and over again. So even though we had our trials and tribulations for the first year or so, and it was very difficult, I would have just done it sooner. Even if we weren't financially prepared for it, I would have just pulled the plug the minute I thought about it. So it could have been a year sooner, it could have been two years sooner, sort of depending on what my attitude was at the time. But as soon as I started to feel that impasse between you know, myself and, and the other company, and then I started to feel that breaking apart, I should have started my own firm right then, and we'd be so much further ahead of the game than we are now. So um, as far as everything else, I feel pretty solid about what we did, but I wish I would have, if I have any regrets when I look back, I just wish I would have started the process sooner. Okay. That, make, that makes perfect sense. Um, so now you're into year three. Talk to us a little bit about passing that first year and getting through some of those real struggles and and what you've done in the last two years. I think the thing that we're starting to see fruit from now is just sort of educating our local prospects that there are, there are other ways to do business in town. Um, we don't sell any financial products at all, and so we have to charge for financial planning, which is something that no one around here has ever paid for financial planning because if you did financial planning, you just bought financial products from, the, from that advisor and you know, you, you really didn't write a check to the advisor for a plan. So, 
you know, because we're not selling financial products, we obviously have to charge for our financial planning, and that's something that was totally unique, and it was a significant hurdle for us to jump over, you know. If, if you've never hired a financial advisor, this guy down the street that doesn't charge a fee but sells financial products that you may or may not need anyway, versus this guy who's going to try to charge you upwards of $1,000 to do a financial plan, you've never done a financial plan. They're, they're, it's apples to apples for you, so you're going to maybe pick the guy that doesn't directly charge you. So what we had to do was something a little bit unique. We, we said, okay, we will bill you at the end of our process for $997, and you pay what you think it's worth, even if that amount is zero. And when we started to do that, that's when we really started to prove to people before we even provided them any value that we do believe in our work and we're willing to put our money where our mouth is. We'll, we'll meet with you three to five times, do a full financial plan, everything from Medicare to Social Security to estate planning. And if you think it's worth zero, it's no risk to you. You pay us zero. And so that's when I, I think the momentum really started to pick up, and we, we've seen very significant growth since then. That sounds to me like sort of a full money-back guarantee on the back end. That's true, but if we said money-back guarantee, I think the, <laughs> the SEC might shut us down. So we're, we have to be Probably. very careful with, around the G word, guarantee, because right. we deal with investments and things. So, so we just say you pay what you think it's worth, even if that amount is zero. So I, I assume nobody, that most of the people... Has Nobody has stiffed us yet. Good. People are pretty much paying the, the retail price because, you know, you're providing, you know, the, the, the real mantra of being an entrepreneur is to provide value greater than what you charge for. So, you know, if you right. do that, then you get your price. And that's how we can feel comfortable is that if, if we think our plan is worth 987 we surely better deliver $1,800 worth of value, you know, and then, and then we'll probably get the 997 right? So, I mean, you've got to under-promise and over-deliver by probably double, and then you can feel pretty safe about, you know, collecting all your projected revenue. Exactly. Now, um, let's go through these three years. It's kind of a short time frame, but has anything changed in the, in the way of regulations or in the business climate that, that has altered, you know, the way you think now as opposed to when you first started? The biggest thing that is, that is sort of rocking the world of financial planning right now is, is uh, the, 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 the Department of Labor's fiduciary standard. Uh, and this is something that's maybe a little bit too minutia for for the average client, uh, the average you know investor. But there are really two standards of care that financial advisors can provide to clients. Uh, a fiduciary is legally obligated to act in your best interest at all times, even if that financial solution doesn't doesn't lie with that advisor. Uh, and and you could you know there's no barriers. You, you could sue your advisor if you find out that they're acting against your interest. The suitability standard is you have to sort of a do no harm. You know, you have to make a reasonable case that this product is suitable. So that means you can do some self-dealing. You can sell proprietary products. You can represent your insurance company or investment company over the interests of your clients. So it's a much looser, it's a standard, but it's a much looser standard. Uh, so that actually benefits our company quite a bit because we're fiduciaries, uh, level fee fiduciaries. So, you know, we're able to not really worry about those big changes because we've already accommodated for them. I mean, we're launching those principles. So it's a big thing that's rocking the world of finance, but not, not, uh, it's working to our favor, actually. Good. So on the other hand, even though you had some, you know, some struggles and some challenges, sometimes unexpected blessings come our way that lift us up and kind of take us to a higher level. Anything in these three years happened to you that, that was a surprise in the positive way? Once we started blogging and podcasting, uh, it was really interesting the connections that we were able to make. Uh, I picked up uh, twice a month uh, morning segment on the local news on the local CBS affiliate Money Monday, uh, which was fantastic. 
uh, great exposure for us. I've been able to be featured just by blogging and sort of having my writing examples out there, been able to participate in some articles in the Huffington Post and Forbes and uh, a number of different publications that have been syndicated and things like that. So um, we just feel uh, extremely fortunate and extremely blessed we've been able to make these positive connections. And uh, it's growing every day. Our podcast is seeing some fantastic growth. And uh, we're firm believers that, you know, we could probably only take on a few, a handful of clients per month. I mean, we're a three, three-person team here. So if we can, you know, visit with 3,000 people every month through our blog and our podcast, and 1% of those, you know, actually call us up for an appointment, then, you know, we're helping 99% and, or 97% of people for free, and then, uh, and then we're, you know, our business is growing on the 3%, so on the 1%. So that's, that's what gets us excited. It is exciting. So you've, you've pretty well taken maximum advantage of some of these opportunities that you've, you've created on a small level, but they, they've kind of grown, uh, kind of maybe even beyond your expectations. Right. One door opens, another door opens, another door. Yeah. Outstanding. Well, we are approaching our first commercial break now, and uh, so we are kind of at the kind of at a stop in one line of questioning and going into another. So I'm going to uh, go ahead and break for our first commercial. When we return, uh, Ben and I will continue with um, talking about his financial expertise and kind of going into some more detail about some of the things that are in his blog. So stay tuned and we will be back in a couple of minutes. You are listening to Coaching for Real on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Imagine a relationship where you're asked to think rather than being told what to think. A relationship that is focused on your potential, not your performance. This is coaching, a designed alliance where the single purpose is achieving your intended outcome. Discover that what lies behind you and what lies before you are trivial matters compared to what lies within you. Understand that your current realities do not define your potential. They are merely your current awareness of your potential. Become your own hero. Your greatest possibilities lie beneath your current level of self-awareness. Waiting to be discovered. Choose to live into the greatness that God created for you. Discover the magnitude of what's within you so you can conquer the magnitude of what surrounds you. Your coach is passionate about helping you achieve your masterpiece at RonaldGraves.com. Again, that's RonaldGraves.com. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. This is Coaching for Real with Ronald Graves. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. 
That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also choose to send an email to Ronald at RonaldGraves.com. Now, back to Coaching for Real. Welcome back. We're talking to Benjamin Brandt, certified financial planner and founder of president, founder and president of Capital City Wealth Management. Now, when we broke for commercials, uh, we had been discussing his uh, background and kind of the inception and uh, launching of his business. And in the first three years, now that he's been in business that long, and now I'd like to shift gears and focus now on on uh, your financial expertise now. Ben, you've created a number of blogs to help us make some sound retirement decisions. I would like you to elaborate on these in maybe a little more detail than what we see on your website. So the first one um, is the five-step process for vetting your financial advisor. Excellent. Yeah, so I came up with five steps of vetting your financial advisor. You know, you've, you've saved your entire life, and I think some people are a little bit too quick to sign over their life savings to a financial advisor without properly vetting them first. Uh, so I came up with five ways uh, to vet your financial advisor. Uh, the first one is that most people, when they think of a financial advisor, they sort of think of uh, a guy that's going to take on all comers, you know, whether you are uh, someone fresh out of college or someone that is saving for their kid's college or someone that's ready to, to start living off of their savings. Every financial advisor covers all bases. And I would say that was true 10 years ago, but through the power of the Internet, financial advisors that have a, a unique interest in one area are able to niche down and focus on just one specific item. Like for our firm, for example, we only deal with clients that are very near to retirement or are actually living off of their savings. In fact, it gets so specific that you could find a financial advisor that only works with young dentists to help them get out of student loan debt and are looking to purchase other dental practices to grow their business. I can't imagine a niche more laser-focused than that. But if he's in Maine and you're in Tennessee, without the Internet, you, you could never find each other, and he could never be that laser-focused because there's not enough people in Maine to, you know, to make that work. But through the power of the Internet, he can narrow, 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 and, and get more laser-focused, which benefits his practice and benefits the clients as well. So the first thing I would do is check their website and see if they are niche-focused or not. Uh, if you think you have a niche-focus, jump on Google and put in what your desires are. And I think you'll be really surprised what you might find, that there's somebody that's their particular unique focus is actually the focus that you need. So number one, check their website. Also read, you know, do a little detective work into the language of their website. You know, if there are words like top producer or million-dollar roundtable or partners club, things like that, that, that's actually a red flag. That usually means that their practice is really sales-focused, uh, and you should decide for yourself if that is the type of financial advisor that you want to work with, somebody that is going to be driven to make large sales. You know, none of us really want to think of ourselves as a potential sale. We want to get some decent financial advice. So that's what I would say first is, number one, check their website. Number two, this is something that's becoming more and more popular, but go to BrokerCheck. Uh, BrokerCheck is uh, FINRA, which is the financial advisor's self-regulating body. And you type your financial advisor's name into broker check, and it gives you their history, uh, everything from the last uh, 10 years of work, what licenses they have, what states they're authorized to work in, uh, what if they have any background, criminal background items, if they have any bankruptcies or liens or things like that, something or criminal complaints or uh, disgorgements or you name it, any nasty thing that a financial advisor could have will be advi- will be disclosed on their broker check uh, if they are a 
a, a registered investment advisor, you can do the same thing on the SEC's website. So I would check both of those before you sign over your, your life savings. The third thing I would do, and this could potentially be awkward, but it is worth asking, ask your financial advisor exactly how they're paid. If they are being paid by their company, you should question that a little bit because you want to pay your financial advisor directly. That's the most transparent way to compensate your financial advisor. So if they're selling financial products and they're getting paid by the insurance company or the investment company that's slightly less transparent, you should decide for yourself if that's what's right for you. If you're paying your financial advisor $500 or $3,000 or whatever it is, depending on the complexity of your plan, you know that's exactly what you're paying, not a penny more and a penny less. You want transparency as the foundation of your financial plan. The other thing that you should do, number four, is to vet their credentials. So when a financial advisor has a whole bunch of letters behind their name, it's going to look impressive if they've got you know a whole alphabet suit behind their name. But not all financial designations are created equal. So if you go over to Paladin Registry, P-A-L-A-D-I-N Registry, they have a check your advisor's credentials link. And I've got it in the blog post, but you can just search Paladin Registry on Google. And you can look through all sorts of, I think they have 270-something different designations that you could search. So one of the best designations is Certified Financial Planner. It's a 10-hour cumulative exam. You need a four-year degree, three years of face-to-face client time, right? It's, It's a very difficult thing to get. But then there are other designations that are like CFPL, you know, with, that they tag on, and they sort of try to be piggyback the CFP designation. And, you know, the website calls them out on this and say, this financial advisor that's using this designation is probably up to no good, and you should avoid them. They use more flowery, flowery language than that, but, but you get the point. And then number five, the final thing you should do is find out if they are a fiduciary 100% of the time. We mentioned fiduciary in our last segment, but a fiduciary is legally obligated to act in your best interest as opposed to a suitability standard. So some advisors are on the fiduciary side, some are on suitability, and some do a little bit of both. And so you want to ask, are you a fiduciary 100% of the time? If not, why not? So those are the top five things that I would do if I was a client and I was about to hand my life, my life savings over to a stranger. Good advice. Now, the next one is, you may have already answered with this last one, and that's the, the four must-ask questions to ask before hiring a financial advisor. I heard it what I think is a couple of those questions in your last explanation. Is that, is that true? There, yeah, there's, there's a little bit of redundancy there. But the first thing I would ask is, are you a fiduciary? You know, we covered why that's important. The second one is, are you committed to lifelong learning? You know, there is, you know, one thing that we learned in the, in the military is that complacency kills. Uh, if you become complacent for even a moment on the battlefield, uh, your life could change for the worst very quickly. That's very similar to financial advice and, and investing other people's money. You know, if you're not committed to life, lifelong learning, if you're just sort of getting complacent and maybe you're five to ten years from retirement as a financial advisor, it's very easy to become complacent and to stop learning. And, and I don't think that your clients would benefit from that. So if you're a client, you want to find out, are you committed to lifelong learning? So looking at their designations, if they are a CFA, CFP, CPA, you know that there's going to be continuing education built into those hard-to-get designations. So it's reasonable to expect that they would be lifelong learners. But ask your financial advisor, what, what are you reading? What have you been reading? What did you read last year? And, and ask them and try to gauge for yourself if they're committed to lifelong learning because you're going to want an advisor that's on the cutting edge of whatever is out there on the spectrum of financial advice. So, again, ask if they're committed to lifelong learning. Niche or generalist? Now, 
that's for the financial advisor. Maybe as a client, you just have general ideas. I need to save for my kid's college. You know, that's a, that's a, a generalist plan that any advisor could, could uh, answer. If you just inherited $10 million, that might be something that's more niche-focused. If you just won the lottery, there are advisors that focus just on that. If you are thinking that you might uh, divorce your spouse, there are advisors that focus just on that. So ask if you are, have a niche need or a generalist need. And then number four, ask if they will spend time with you. You know, this is something that, of course, if you ask an advisor, they would say that straight away. Of course I will. But you need to judge that for yourself rather than ask it as a question. So in the first meeting, if they're pulling out sales brochures and, you know, showing you the latest glossy handout of, of such and such variable index fixed annuity, what have you, that's going to solve all of your problems, just sign here. You know, that's a good indicator that they're not willing to spend quite a bit of time with you after the sale. So you're going to want to meet with your advisor two, three, four, five times before you sign on that dotted line, just to be sure, especially if we're talking about your life savings, that they are going to want to spend some time with you both before and after they're, they're managing your, your finances. So those would be the top, the top four must-ask questions before hiring a financial advisor. Well, I just have a question that came off what you just said, and that's, how comfortable are most financial advisors going to be with, with, you know, you wanting to meet with them three, four, or five times before you, you know, give them any of your money? Well, if you are going to spend 30 years in retirement and you're going to meet with your advisor two or three times a year, that's 100 meetings. You know, so if you meet with them three times, uh, you know, that's 3% of the way to 100%. So, I mean, that's a, on the front end, it does seem like a, quite of a commitment. I mean, that might be a month or two or three months worth of, of meetings, you know, every week or every other week, depending on your schedule. But if you look at it in the scope of a fully executed financial plan, it's actually a really small commitment. Okay. I think I saw something on your website about you hiring a, uh, an investigator or something, you know, to vet you or think, can, you, can you explain that? Yep. So, that, so when I was writing the blog post, five ways to vet a financial advisor, uh, I was in the shower and of course, all my good ideas come to me in the shower. And I thought, what would be the greatest extent that someone could go to a hypothetical client, a potential client, to vet me as a financial advisor. And I thought, you know, short of hiding outside of my, uh, of my house in the bushes with some binoculars, they could hire a private investigator. So I thought, well, through the magic of the Internet, there's got to be a private investigator that I could hire to, you know, sleuth me and find out what's out there. So uh, I went on a website, Fiverr.com, F-I-V-E-R-R.com, and I found a, a private investigator. I paid him, I think, $60.00. And within a few days, I had to, of course, give him all my personal information, uh, which was a little scary. But within a few days, he gave me a, like an 89-page paper of every possible thing that you could imagine. He knew which suite I stayed in in college and who my suite mates were and, and what dorm room. He knew every vehicle I've ever owned, including the VIN numbers. He knew my neighbors' names and their birthdays, uh, going back you know, to when I lived in apartments uh, as uh, just fresh out of high school. So uh, it was really remarkable what he was able to find. Uh, I redacted. No, for $50 or $60 or whatever I paid him, I I couldn't believe what he he found. He knew my wife's parents' names and and those, uh, uh, her relatives and cousins, and it it just, it went on and on and on. So I redacted quite a bit of information, but I did make that report available on my website. So if anybody, you know, rather than hiring a private investigator, if they just want to read the report, we want to, with it's tongue-in-cheek, of course, but we want to prove to people that we believe in transparency to the fullest extent of our abilities. And everything was accurate? Everything was accurate. There was a few things, you know, Benjamin Brandt is a pretty common name. 
So there was, I'm Benjamin J. Brandt, there's Benjamin K. Brandt and Benjamin M. Brandt, and they, you know, in the Midwest, there's, Brandt is a German name, there's lots of Germans running around. Uh, so there's lots of Benjamin Brandt. So if I thought the information wasn't accurate, I just redacted it, and, you know, rather than be confusing. But uh, but I left a lot in there, I, uh, including, you know, you probably remember the pizza delivery days of 30 minutes or it's free. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. That was a very... That was a very stressful time for pizza delivery drivers because, you know, that $10 pizza came out of the uh, minimum wage <laughs> pizza delivery guy's uh, 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 overhead. So, you know, that developed a, a few poor driving habits that may have followed me uh, into adulthood. So those are on there. <laughs> uh-huh. I left everything on there. Yeah. Everything was on there. Yeah. Okay, Ben, can you – another question here. Can you explain why trusting your advisor is important but not enough? What, what else do we need to do? Well, when trusting your financial advisor, one thing, one mistake that I see people make all the time, and they're doing it with the best of intentions, and they're doing it to protect themselves, but they're actually, in most cases, harming themselves, is I see two, I see a client try to hire two financial advisors. I think we're all familiar with the language of don't put all of your eggs in one basket. So they take, if you've got a million-dollar portfolio, they put 500000 with advisor A and 500000 with advisor B. And we're, when we're approached with this sort of uh, proposition, we, we flatly say, no, thank you, take 100% of your investments to financial advisor B. Because what the client doesn't realize is they are creating some pretty perverse incentives for their life savings. You know, if you tell me, here's, here's a pile of money, I'll see how you do. I'm giving another pile of money to this other financial advisor. We'll see how he does. We'll circle back in a year or two, and we'll see how you did. You know, so I'm competing against this other financial advisor. So you have to think what my incentives are. My incentives are to swing for the fences, right? Mm, yeah. I mean, if this is your money, Ronald, it, it, my, my incentive is to swing for the fences or either double your money in a year or you're going to take all of your money to the other advisor, right? Well, what if, what if taking those massive risks aren't in your best interest as the client? You know, so even though you're, you're you know, trying to be prudent with your investments, uh, you could actually be doing something that is massively destructive to your, to your finances. So... You know, when you invest with someone, you should be investing under the guise of a financial plan, a written financial plan that says, this are my goal, these are my goals, and these are how I want to accomplish them, and this is the plan that you've created for me to do that, rather than, here's some money, I don't have a plan, maximum returns. So, especially when we're looking at a fully valued stock market and rising interest rates, uh, you are really playing with fire. Okay. That answers my next question, which was, you know, do we need more than one financial advisor? Obviously, that answer is no. Yeah, um, that, that's why I would do the two appointments, three appointments, ten appointments, okay. that multiple advisors, and then commit, you know, go all in with both feet once you've formulated that trust, once you've vetted the person, once you've asked all the questions. Rather than spread your money out all over town uh, and never actually accomplish anything, you know, I would choose one advisor and, and stick with it. Okay, we got a couple minutes left before our next commercial break. So um, talk about naked investing. You you. Can you define this term and, and tell us why you know, it looks like on your website we shouldn't be doing this? So naked investing is something I see so many people doing. Uh, if I sit down with a new client and they say, you know, I'm, I'm pretty aggressive in my 401k, I've got it almost all, all in stocks, and ask them why, they say, well, I want to maximize returns. The problem with that is that they're naked investing. You know, we wear clothes for modesty purposes, of course, but we also wear clothes to protect ourselves from the elements. 
And if they're naked investing, they don't have a written financial plan to protect them from the elements, uh, whether that be market corrections or life events or things like that. So people that are investing, especially in their employer-sponsored plans and their 401ks, and especially being stock-heavy, which may or may not be the right thing for them, they need a written financial plan to keep them in their stock positions once the market gets bad. Because, you know, I'm not any sort of a projector, prognosticator, soothsayer, uh, but the market eventually is going to be bad. I mean, if you're going to be around for 30 more years in retirement, there's going to be a dozen times that you hate your portfolio. And if you don't have a written reason that says, here's how much you should have in the stock market, here's why, here's how long, here's what our expected returns are, here's what our expected downturns may be, here's you know a potential worst-case scenario. If you don't have that backing you up and giving you confidence and giving you protection from the elements, it's not going to take much of a market correction to wash you out of those positions. And you get scared, you sell everything, right? We saw that in 2008. We still meet with clients on a monthly basis that are still in cash because they're afraid. They don't have a written financial plan and they're investing naked. So it's completely within the scope of reason that they would be scared and they would sell everything, which is usually the worst thing that you can do for your investments. So no naked investing. The only... The only time you put money to work in the stock market and the bond market is under the protection of a written financial plan. Here's exactly what we're doing, and here's why. Excellent advice. Thank you. We are now getting close to our uh, final commercial break. So I'm going to stop right here, um, and we'll continue with this line of questioning when we get back, because there's still a couple of questions I have uh, from some of your blogs that I'd like to have answers for. So when we return... We will go in, we'll continue with this line of questioning and talk about a little more about the investing uh, advice and expertise from, uh, from Ben. So you're listening to Coaching Career on the Voice America Business Channel. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Imagine a relationship where you're asked to think rather than being told what to think. A relationship that is focused on your potential, not your performance. This is coaching, a designed alliance where the single purpose is achieving your intended outcome. Discover that what lies behind you and what lies before you are trivial matters compared to what lies within you. Understand that your current realities do not define your potential. They are merely your current awareness of your potential. Become your own hero. Your greatest possibilities lie beneath your current level of self-awareness, waiting to be discovered. Choose to live into the greatness that God created for you. Discover the magnitude of what's within you so you can conquer the magnitude of what surrounds you. Your coach is passionate about helping you achieve your masterpiece at RonaldGraves.com. Again, that's RonaldGraves.com. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. is 
Coaching for Real with Ronald Graves. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also choose to send an email to ronald at ronaldgraves.com. Now, back to Coaching for Real. Okay, we're here with uh, Benjamin Brandt, and we were discussing, kind of picking on his expertise and his the things on his website, his blogs, trying to get into some more detail. Got a few more questions to ask before I kind of get into his written financial plan that he has available. Um, one of them is, now everyone who lives to retirement age is eventually faced with the decision of when to begin taking their Social Security benefits. Everybody has to make that decision at the exact right time. You say that taking Social Security too early can be a grave mistake. So can you elaborate on this? Yeah, you bet. Uh- I think it's human nature a little bit to, you know, when, when you get a letter in the mail that says, hey, your 62nd birthday is coming up. We've got $1,200 here waiting for you. Uh, where should we send it? I think it's within human nature to say, yeah, I'll take, I'll get what's mine when the getting's good. Uh, but I think that's for many people, especially married couples, that's very short-sighted. Most people don't realize two things. One, every year that you defer your Social Security check, you get an 8% bump in your check. And now, you know, Many times in our investments, you can beat 8% on a good year, but I'm a firm believer of, you know, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. So, you know, looking at a fully valued stock market, looking at rising interest rates, are there investments that we could liquidate and defer just one year or maybe defer eight years? You can defer it all the way up until age 70 and get 132% of your full retirement benefit. So that's one thing that people neglect is that they just sort of, knee-jerk reaction. Uh, I think only 14% of people actually wait until full retirement age, uh, which is uh, too too few people in in my view. The second thing that people neglect, and it could be a grave mistake, is if you're married, people don't realize that whatever the larger check is, it does not matter who that larger check is assigned to, like which social security number it is assigned to, who paid in those benefits, because whoever passes away first, the smaller social security check goes away. So I think people collect early because they are under the correct notion that, boy, if, you know, if I wait until age 70 to collect Social Security and then I die the next day, I've missed out on hundreds of, potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars or at least several tens of thousands of dollars of benefits, and you'd be right. But if you're married, your spouse is allowed to carry on that check. So it's really like a joint and survivor check, that larger Social Security check. And that's something that very few people know ahead of time when I'm teaching this class at the local community college or when I'm meeting with someone, you know, one-on-one, face-to-face. So what are the chances of that larger Social Security check? What are the chances that either you or your spouse or both of you are going to make it until old age, 80s, 90s, and beyond? For a lot of people, it's pretty good. So I think deferring that larger check until full retirement age, which is 66 or 67 for most of most people listening to this, or even potentially until age 70. And so that's hard to do without a fully flushed out financial plan. But for many people, when we run the numbers, it is, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to the better for them to wait. Not everybody can afford to wait. I understand that. But you should you should decide for yourself through a written financial plan if, if it's in the car, on the table for you, if it's in the cards. Uh, and then if it's the right decision for you. So most people will just neglect it straight away and collect it at 62, but for a huge percent of the population, they should reconsider. It reminds me of a personal story because my father retired. Uh, he took his retirement shortly after age 62, thinking he might live another 10, 15 years. 
and he just passed away two years ago at the age of 95. So that is a long time to be drawn on your Social Security. Um, he said, kept saying, if I don't know I was going to live this long, I would have worked a little bit longer. So, you know, right. it, it really right. is true. Collecting Social Security early is a 25% penalty, and you write that in for life, yeah. and then you also write that in for your spouse's life, which I think a lot of people don't fully grasp when they make that decision. Mm-hmm. Now, we're going to want to hear the answer to this next one. And that is, Ben, can you talk about the five reasons to work just one more year? Yeah, you know, when, when, when I visit with clients and they've, you know, North Dakota is heavy into coal and heavy into oil, uh, which is not very forgiving work. And when we think about, you know, I talk to guys that have done 30 years in the power plants and the coal mines, and, you know, to talk to them about working one more year, even if it is in their best interest, is a difficult discussion to have. So I came up with five reasons, five quick reasons why working one more year could be the best thing that ever happened to you. And then I've even got a bonus reason, but number one is compound interest. You know, when I talk to the average 58-year-old uh, that's looking to retire uh, from the coal mines or from the oil fields, that is their peak earning years for compound interest. You know, they've got nearly all of the balance that they're going to have in their 401k. And you've got a really good chance, even just looking at just one year, you've got something like a 70% chance, uh, 70% of the time the market's going to be up that year. So just one more year of compound interest on your life savings could make such a huge impact to your overall financial plan for both you and your spouse. So reason number one is compound interest. Reason number two is health insurance. Uh, there's been some pretty large upheavals in the health insurance system over the last decade or so. And one of the biggest bills that our clients have to pay that retire before age 65 is their health insurance. Uh, they could easily pay twelve dollars to $1,500 a month for, for themselves and their spouse uh, in health insurance premiums. So just working one more year can have a ten dollars or a $15,000 positive benefit to their net worth just by sticking on that employer-sponsored plan for just 12 more months. Number three is clean up your pesky debt. Uh, one, it's nice to clean up your debt because once you're on a fixed income, we've all heard our parents or grandparents talk about living on a fixed income. Well, each debt that we can eliminate uh, clears up uh, a little bit more income that we can spend for ourselves. You know, if we remove a $200 car payment, well, that's $200 more in retirement that we can enjoy and spend on, on lifestyle. The other thing that we want to analyze our debt uh, while we're working in that one more year, is if you have any credit card debt, that's a bit of a red flag. Um, there's all sorts of ways we can get credit card debt, but usually it's from monthly overspending. And if you're about to transition into living off of your savings, you know, overspending is a fantastic way to completely mess up your retirement. So look at that debt. You know, if you, if you say, I'm going to work 12 more months, four more quarters, 52 more weeks, look at cleaning up the debt as something that could really plus up your plan. Uh, the, the fourth one is your 401k match. Uh, you've got one more year of match uh, at your what's likely to be your peak earning year, so that could be a great reason to work one more year. It could add tens of thousands of dollars, or, or I should say up to $10,000 in many cases, to your uh, retirement plan, which, you know, one more year of retirement or one more year of work is often worth it. And then obviously boosting your Social Security. We talked uh, in the last little bit about one, one year of deferring Social Security is uh, is an eight percent increase. So those are my top five reasons. A bonus reason would be, and this gets a little bit into statistics, but a thirty-year retirement, uh, based on what you've saved, gives you a certain probability that we can help clients calculate. But a twenty-nine-year retirement after you've worked one more year is always a better outcome, simply because you're turning 
stretching 30 years of savings into 29 years of savings. So you're able to increase your retirement spending by something around along the lines of 3%. So uh, all sorts of reasons, and hopefully that wasn't too much arm twisting for that hypothetical client, but several reasons why working one more year in ret- before retirement could be uh, something that's really beneficial to your financial plan. As you were going through that, there's something I just thought of that you may have touched on, but maybe not, that you know, your, your Social Security retirement is based on how much you pay into it. So if you pay another year of you know, Social Security retirement into your Social Security fund, then, then that will increase it as well, won't it? That's absolutely right. Every assuming that you are, you know, getting increases every so often in in your salary, uh, your Social Security benefits are based on your highest 35 years adjusted for inflation. So if you've only worked for 35 years and your first year was a paper route or pizza delivery or washing cars like it was for me, you know, if if you are at your peak earning years in your late 50s, early 60s, that next final year that you earn is going to knock off one of those smaller years. Now, they do adjust those smaller years to inflation to, to make it, you know, more of an apples-to-apples comparison. But if you've, if you've been a diligent, uh, diligent at your career and you're getting incre- increases every so often in promotions and, and you name it, you know, knocking off one of, those, uh, one of those prior years can be pretty impactful. Definitely. Okay, let's say that we get to the point in our lives where retirement isn't something that's just now way out there in the future, but it's beginning to stare us right in the face. So can you talk about the five key things to do five years before retirement? So five years before retirement, I mean, we're really getting close to that finish line. I mean, we can almost hit it from with a rock from where we're standing. So if we're, you know, if we're in the, in the, uh, past the blue line to use hockey terms or, or getting close to the end zone to, lose, to use football terms, uh, five things that we could do is number one, prepare your budget. The budget is the cornerstone of your written financial plan because it tells your investments how hard they need to work. And I've made the mistake in the past of not really drilling down with clients the specifics of that budget, and, it, and it's had some dire consequences for some clients when they say, you know, I think I need two or three thousand uh, dollars to live in retirement, and then we're two or three years into retirement, and they're taking out five or six or seven thousand dollars a month that we had not accounted for because the budget was, you know, we did a budget, but it wasn't reality, and we didn't find that out until we were in reality. So that's the biggest thing that someone should do five years from retirement. If you're not already living on a budget, that's something that you need to do because you can't, you can't create a written financial plan without one. Number two is map it out. Decide for yourself what that retirement looks like and then start to assign numbers to it. So, for example, are you going to be a snowbird? You know, it gets pretty cold up here in North Dakota, and many clients like to, uh, once the snow starts flying in, uh, in October, November, they like to head down south. So if that's something that you would like to do that you're not doing now, you know, we need to start to think about what that might cost. Uh, so start to map that out. You know, what, what vacations, what leisure activities, what sort of things would you want to do in retirement? And then bring that back to the budget and say, okay, you know, I think we're actually, we can take a reduction in lifestyle. We're not going to do as much as we're doing now. Or we're going to increase our lifestyle quite a bit because we've got 10 years of, of you know, health ahead of us, you know, based on family history. So we're going to spend more. So prepare your budget, map it out, know your benefits. Uh, five years from retirement is a great time to go onto the Social Security website and start to play with some of those financial calculators that they have. Maybe you haven't gotten a benefit statement in a few years. You could print one of those out. Uh, start to gather your 401K and IRA and investment documents and start to look at those and start to compile you know, a net worth statement of what that all looks like. And then 
evaluate with your with your current employer, you know, what some of their retiree benefits might be. Do they have health insurance options available? Do they have a pension? How much is the pension? Uh, so start to start evaluate what uh, what do those sort of benefits look like for a retiree? Because for many people, they're changing all the time. And if retirement isn't at the front of your mind, there could have been some changes a year or two ago that uh, that you weren't aware of. So five years from retirement to start to when you should start to sort of turn those stones over and, and see what's underneath. Number four is look at your debt. Uh, again, we talked about credit card debt being a, a big red flag, but uh, having a house payment is the, usually the second largest bill that people have in retirement. The first is health insurance if they retire pre-65. The second is the house payment. So if you feel very confident about your retirement savings, maybe you could pare that back a little bit and attack any debts that, that you see as being a problem. And usually the house payment is towards the top of that list. Credit card debts would be uh, a big red flag, but cleaning up car payments, cleaning up house debt, second mortgages, things like that could be a great thing to do five years before retirement. And the final thing is you need to have a plan B and you even need to have a plan C. One thing that many clients don't realize is once they aren't working anymore, that makes them available to do all sorts of things for their family, whether they're doing it willingly or less than willingly. Many of our clients, uh, you know, they're retiring in their 60s, their parents are in their 80s and 90s, and they didn't realize ahead of time how much caretaking they would be doing. And of course, we're all, we all try to be good children and take care of our moms and dads, but that can have a physical toll and it can have a financial toll as well. So brainstorm with your spouse, you know, what are the state of your parents and are they going to need financial support? Are they going to need time support? And how does that boil into your budget? Have the same conversation and the same brainstorm around your children. Many times we have clients that their kids move back in. Sometimes even grandkids move in for a while. Um, that changes things. You know, going from what does the inside of the fridge look like for the empty nester? What does the inside of a fridge look like when a 26-year-old moves back in? And, you know, once they get laid off, uh, you know, from the from the the job. So, have those brainstorms and anything that we can plan ahead for. Have a plan A, plan B, plan C. Be proactive Excellent. with your retirement plan instead of reactive and uh, it's going to pay off in spades. Well, guess what? Our time has come by really, really fast. Wow. And uh, we're basically down to the last minute or so. So tell our folks how they can get in touch with you and how they can uh, tap into your written financial plan in the last 60 seconds or so here. Sure. I, if you want to learn more from me, I would head on over to iTunes and check out Retirement Starts Today Radio. That's our podcast. We put out a couple episodes a month, and we talk about the topics on the minds of the modern retiree. If you're interested in our financial plans, head on over to retirementstartstoday.com and check out our Retire Ready Blueprint. That's our unique process where we take you from beginning to end, and within 30 days, you can have all of your retirement questions answered and get a percent probability of what your success rate might look like. And like we mentioned previously, uh, you pay what you think it's worth, even if that amount is zero. So uh, there is no financial commitment on your end uh, in the beginning. So we don't like we can't say no risk, uh, but uh, <laughs> if you don't like it, you don't pay. <laughs> Outstanding. Thank you so much for being on our show. Um, Got to come to close now, and uh, it's been a sincere pleasure having you as a guest, and it's been a pleasure adding value to everyone through coaching for real. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Until we meet again, and we will see you next week. Thank you for listening to Coaching for Real today. Be sure to join Ronald Graves again next Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll talk again very soon.